0: Thank you for checking out our sermon here at Hope Church. We're excited that you came across this message and are tuning in. We just wanna make you aware of a couple things before we get to the sermon. First, we'd love to connect with you. You can follow us on our social networks by searching at Hope Church LV. Also, be sure to check out our website, hopechurchonline.com. There, you can find out more information about who we are and where we are headed as a church. Once again, thank you for checking out our sermon here at Hope Church. Please let us know if there's any questions you have or any way we can come alongside you and your family. Enjoy the message. One of my favorite authors is a man by the name of A.W. Tozier. I highly recommend picking up and reading any book you find that he has written. I've been rereading over the last couple of weeks a book that he wrote called The Knowledge of the Holy because in it he addresses a lot of the themes and topics that we're talking about God over these days together. Here's what Tozer said. The low view of God entertained almost universally among Christians is the cause of a hundred lesser evils. Everywhere among us. If we would bring back spiritual power to our lives, we must, we must begin to think of God more nearly as He is. You know what we need today? We need a fresh vision of God more than we need anything else in our lives we are desperate for a fresh understanding of who God is like like the prophet Isaiah experienced in Isaiah chapter 6 we read about it where Isaiah says when, when 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 King Uzziah died Isaiah said I saw The Lord, and he was seated on the throne and he was high and exalted. Isaiah had this fresh vision of God, and it so deeply moved Isaiah and so changed him that ultimately it changed a nation because of what God did in making himself known to Isaiah. So, if you weren't here a couple of weeks ago and last week, we've launched into what we're calling a deep. Dive. We're taking several weeks this summer and we're doing a deep dive into understanding who God is and the the, the area that we're diving into scripture is Psalm 145. If you have your Bible, you can go ahead and open it there. We're taking 11 weekends, and we're just doing a deep dive into this powerful psalm that reveals so much about the character and the nature of God, asking God to just move us with a fresh vision of who He is. And as a part of this deep dive... Uh, we have several components. There's a small group component. We're spending 11 weeks teaching through this psalm. But as a part of this deep dive, one of the things that we've asked you to do is we've challenged you to memorize the entire 145th psalm. And we're doing it in bite-sized pieces. So the first week, we memorized verses 1 and 2. And this week, we got a little more aggressive, and we did three verses, verses 3 4 and 5 when you came in this morning you find your new scripture memory card this card is not going to help you today at all all right Because verses 3 through 5 are not on here. What you have on here are the verses that we have for this week, verses 6 and 7. And then the next week, verses 8 and 9. So we're back to just two verses a week. But we are going to attempt together to quote Psalm 145, verses 3 through 5. All right, you ready? I know this makes some of you nervous, but listen, not near as nervous as if you're up here, right? I mean, I got to do this up here with a microphone on and everybody looking at me, and it's really easy to stumble over a word. So, Psalm 145, verses 3 through 5. You ready? Let's do it together. Great is the Lord, and highly to be praised. Wait a minute. You're giving them a cheat sheet. We weren't supposed to do that. That was only in there if they messed up, all right? I didn't want to be on an island, so I didn't. I wasn't sure how you were going to do, so I had this prepared. So we don't need it. They're doing fine without it. So let's start over. Let's do it again. Here we go. <laughs> Great is the Lord, and highly to be praised, and his greatness is unsearchable. One generation shall declare your works to another, and shall praise your mighty acts. On the glorious splendor of your majesty and on your wonderful works, I will meditate. You did fantastic. That's awesome. (laughs) Psalm 145 verses 3 through 5. So for this week, we're going to memorize Psalm 145 verses 6 and 7. So let's look at those verses this morning. Psalm 145 verses 6 and 7. Men shall speak of the power of your awesome acts, and I will tell of your greatness. They shall eagerly utter the memory of your abundant goodness, and will shout joyfully of your righteousness. Two new verses for us today dive into this morning, and then to spend time memorizing and meditating on them during the week. So we want to ask the same two questions out of these verses this morning, and here's the first one. What do these verses tell us about God? Because with each of these verses that we've looked at so far, every one of them introduces us to some new content about the character and the person of God. So, let me give you three things that these verses tell us about God. Here's the first one. God is awesome. Say that out loud with me. God is awesome. To be honest with you, we should probably never use this word to describe anyone but God himself. God is awesome. You heard it in verse 6. The psalmist said, men shall speak of the power of your awesome Acts. Now we get that word awesome acts as two words, but in the original Hebrew language, it's just one Hebrew word. And it speaks of the quality of being awesome being awesome empower being awesome in such a way that it induces fear and respect from others it's a word that when used as a noun could simply be stated awesomeness so you could say it this way men shall speak of the power of your awesomeness but it's used here as a verb men shall speak of the power of your being awesome and this verb implies that God is awesome not because of what he does but God is simply awesome because of who he is all by himself God is just awesome he's awesome we sing a song here at Hope sometimes about our God being awesome. Where does it come from? It comes from right out of Psalms just like this. God is awesome. When you look up the word awesome in the English dictionary, let me give you a couple of definitions. The word awesome in Macmillan Dictionary is defined this way. Very impressive and sometimes a little frightening. Awesome. Awesome. Oxford Dictionary defines it this way, extremely impressive or daunting, inspiring great admiration, apprehension, or fear. Often in the English language, we use the word awesome to describe that which is big enough to impress us and intimidate us at the same time. That's how we sometimes use the word. When something is so big, it's awesome, but it's also just a little bit intimidating. Man, that's awesome. I've been to the continent of Africa now about 20 times, but my first trip to Africa was in 1998. In 1998, I made my first trip on a mission team down to Southern Africa. We did a week-long conference in Johannesburg, and then we flew down and did a week-long conference in a city called Cape Town, South Africa. How many of you have ever been to Cape Town, South Africa? So some of you know what I'm about to say arguably the most beautiful city on the face of the earth I'm telling you I've never seen a city as beautiful as Cape Town because Cape Town has these massive mountains but it's also right there on the tip of the the, the continent of Africa where the Indian and Atlantic oceans come together so you've got this beautiful mountain scenery put together with the ocean normally you either go to the you go to the beach or you go go to the mountains but in Cape Town you get them both and there's one mountain right in the middle called Table Mountain I want you to see the view from Table Mountain the view from Table Mountain is just immaculate you you get on this cable car and you ride it up to the top of this mountain peak and they call it Table Mountain because it's flat across the top and when you get up there on this mountain peak, the view of the ocean is just, that it, it, you just can't, a picture can't even grasp how beautiful it is. But but it's also very intimidating because up there on the top of Table Mountain, those of you who have been there know this, in South Africa, they, they didn't have all the safety regulations that we would have for something like this here in America. Like, I want you to look at this next picture. People would walk right out to the edge and just like, I'm thinking, and there were people with children, and they had children just running right along the edge, and I'm just the whole time holding my breath. But why? Because it's awesome. It's massive. It's beautiful, but it's also just a little bit intimidating. Came across something else this week that helped me understand the concept of God being awesome. Came across a children's book. You ever heard of this children's book? It's by Robert E. Wells, and here's the title of it. Is a Blue Whale the Biggest Thing There Is? You ever heard of this book before? I'd never heard of it before, but I saw it online this week, and so I actually ordered a copy of it. and I spent some time reading this book. I'm telling you, you ought to read this book. It's a great book. the, The title of it, Is a Blue Whale the Biggest Thing There Is, is really what he begins to explore throughout this book. And he starts by introducing us to the blue whale. Did you know that the blue whale is the largest animal in the entire animal world? As a matter of fact, just the flippers on the blue whale are larger than almost every other animal on the face of the earth. This animal grows to be over a hundred feet long and weighs more than a hundred and fifty tons. Yeah, wow. That's a, I don't know how, how, how wide, I, I think from this wall to that wall back there is, is over a hundred feet. I mean, think about that. Think about the size. You, you imagine swimming out there in the ocean and this guy comes up <laughs> to say hello. Massive. But, but, but Robert Wells says, the blue whale's not the biggest thing there is. He begins to contrast the blue whale with with Mount Everest. And you know what he says about Mount Everest? He says if Mount Everest was hollowed out, you could take a blue whale, and you could take a a large jar, and if you had a jar big enough to hold a hundred blue whales, you could fill Mount Everest with over a million jars of a hundred blue whales, all that's right here in this book. <laughs> but then he says, Mount Everest's not the biggest thing there is. He says, if you could stack Mount Everest's on top, on top of each other, and you could stack Mount Everest a hundred Mount Everest's high, Mount Everest would simply be, he called it, a whisker. On the face of the earth. It'd be like if we were to stack a hundred Mount Everest, we could draw a little line right here. There's your whisker. But he says, he goes on to say, the earth is not the biggest thing there is. It's not. He, he goes on to compare the earth to the sun. But a picture of the sun up here. He tells us in this little book that you can put one million earths inside the sun. This place we call home, earth. You can put a million of them inside the sun. But he tells us that the earth's not the biggest. The the sun's not the biggest thing there is. He goes on to compare the sun to another star. Because the sun is simply one star in our galaxy. He compares the sun to a star called Antares. (laughs) Now, you can fit a million earths inside of that. And he tells us, you can fit 50 million of these inside of that. But that's not the biggest thing there is. (laughs) Because he goes on to tell us that there are billions of these inside the Milky Way galaxy. So... A million earths inside of the sun that you can fit 50 million of those inside of Ontario's, and there are millions and billions of stars like Ontario's and our sun located in the Milky Way galaxy. But that's not the biggest thing there is. I'm telling this is a kid's book. You laughed at me when you said I read it. Now here's what's going on. All oh, you gonna to want to go get this book now, right? Because that's not the biggest thing there is. He tells us that our galaxy is located inside of the universe. And the universe contains millions and millions and millions of galaxies. The Milky Way would just be one. Of these millions and millions and millions of galaxies. And to be honest with you. Even though the universe is filled with billions of galaxies. Most of the universe is empty. Meaning this. The space. The distance between. From one galaxy to another galaxy. Is beyond human calculation. Now. As much as I appreciate Robert E. Wells in this little book, this is where he missed it. Because listen to how he closes his book. The universe is the biggest thing we know. More than likely, I appreciate his intellectual honesty there. He didn't say yes, he said, more than likely, we can call it. The biggest thing there is. Oh, but I got a word for Robert E. Wells. And it's out of, well we need to ask him if he can add this page to his book. It needs to close with Isaiah chapter 40 verse 26. Listen what it says: Lift up your eyes on high and see who has created these stars the one who leads forth their host by number he calls them all by name because of the greatness the word greatness there is a Hebrew word that means large or big because of the bigness the awesomeness of his mind might and the strength of his power not one of them is missing when I understand this truth about God there's only one word to describe him awesome he is awesome now here's what that means for you and me today here's a life application Nothing is too big for God. Nothing's too big for God. That means it doesn't matter what you're facing right now. Some of you came in here today and you have challenges. You have obstacles. You have problems. You have difficulties. Some of you have opportunities. Listen to me nothing is too big for him. Listen, I'm not saying it's not too big for you. And I'm not saying it's not too big for me. And I'm not even saying it's not too big for us together. It may be very well too big for us. But listen to me. It's not too big for him. And what you need to do is like this little book. You just need to begin to take your problems and compare them to the bigness of God. And find encouragement and strength and comfort in Him. God is awesome. Second truth. God is good. Say that out loud with me. God is good. Do you hear it? Look back at verse number 6. And I will tell of your greatness. Verse 7. They shall eagerly utter the memory of your abundant Goodness. Goodness. The word goodness is a word that means moral excellence. The psalmist said it this way in Psalm 119. Look at it. He said, You, speaking of God, you are good and do good, meaning this good. Is not just who he is, good is what he does. Who is good? God is good. What does God do? Good things. God is good and God does good things. A.W. Tozier said this. That God is good is taught or implied on every page of the Bible and must be received as an article of faith as impregnable as the throne of God. Here's what that means. As sure as the throne of God is not going to move, God is good. God is good. Let me give you some practical takeaways of that. God is good means that God is himself good and the ultimate standard of goodness. Meaning all goodness is to be measured by God himself. Remember what Jesus said about him? No one is good except God alone. God is good. Not only is God himself good in the ultimate standard of goodness, all that God does is good. All that he does is good. For God to do that which is not good would mean that he is not God for God is good. He can only do good things. That's why even when things in our lives don't appear to be good, we can know that God is working it out for our good. Why? Because God is good. I quoted a minute ago out of Psalm 119 where the psalmist said, you are good and you do good. A little later in that psalm, Psalm 119 verse 71, listen to what David said. It's not on the screen, but listen to this. David said, it is good for me that I was afflicted. Listen to that. It is good for me that I was afflicted. Why? So that I may learn your statutes. David was even able to look back on the things in his life that brought difficulty and harm and frustration and say, even that is the goodness of God in my life. God is the source of all good in the world. Let me show it to you out of James chapter 1. Every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above. Coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. God is good himself. All that God does is good. And every good thing in the world is a gift from God. God is good. Here's here's a life application for you on this one. Everything in my life. Say that word. Say it one more time. I want you to get it. Everything in my life has been filtered through the what? The goodness of God. God is good. All that God does is good. Everything in my life has been filtered through the goodness of God. It's why the psalmist, three times in three different psalms, Psalms 106, Psalms 107, and Psalms 118, the psalmist said, give thanks to the Lord for he is what? Good. I know what you're thinking. But right now, it doesn't feel good When I pastored my first church, it was in a small town in Tennessee. The town had only 4,000 people in it. And the church experienced a lot of rapid growth. As a matter of fact, in the first three and a half years that I was there, the church in a town of 4,000 people baptized over 300 people into the church that had come to know Christ. The church grew to running six, seven hundred people. Some weekends, almost eight hundred. Some weekends, and, and I think about that town of four thousand people. The church was six to eight hundred. God was moving in the life of this church. But long story short, there was some. One of the things that's so beautiful about our church here is the multi-ethnic, multicultural flavor of our church that God has brought us all together as one body in Christ. Well, that wasn't true of the church that I had pastored. In Tennessee at this time, and as our church began to grow, we started reaching people that didn't look just like everybody else in the church and started creating tension and problems. And long story short, what it ultimately led to was myself and our entire staff team being asked to leave. It was one of the darkest moments in mine and my wife's life, personally in ministry. We thought we were doing everything we were supposed to do, where we were supposed to be doing it, obeying God, and we lost everything. To leave us with nothing but Jesus, to come to the absolute greatest discovery of our life, and that is that Jesus is enough. And through that journey, God began to do a work in my heart of stripping down my life. From a belief that God had called me to ministry to a belief that God had called me to intimacy. And ministry is what he does out of the overflow of intimacy. And through that journey of brokenness... God led me to a little verse of scripture in Luke chapter 4 verse 43 where Jesus said, I must preach the kingdom of God to the other cities also for I was sent for this purpose. And it was that morning sitting before the Lord that God used that verse of scripture to call my family to Las Vegas, Nevada to join in his activity here. Now we sit here 18 years in and man, our involvement here at Hope Church has been the greatest ride of our lives. Listen, in 1998, what happened to me in that church in Tennessee did not look good. But I'm telling you, I sit here today, almost 20 years this side of that, and I look back and go, man, that was God being real good to me. Because listen, I would never, I would never, I was, I was, if I was ever going to leave that church, I was going to a bigger church, and a bigger church, and a bigger, that's just what you did, right? You don't leave a good church to go preach in your living room. Didn't feel good. But let me tell you what I know today. It was the goodness of God. And here's what I'm telling you. You may not be able today to see his goodness in what you're in. But I promise you, if not in this life, in eternity you will look back and say, Man, that was the goodness of God. How can we be so certain? Let me tell you how. God is good. He's good. Tell you the third thing, He is. God is righteous. He's righteous. The Scripture says in verse 7, And will shout joyfully of your righteousness. The word righteous is a word that means blameless conduct. The noun describes justice, right actions, right attitudes, adherence to what is required according to a standard. Bill Bright, who founded Campus Crusade for Christ, Bill Bright said it this way. He said, all righteousness within the entire universe has its origin in him. Everything God does is perfectly right in every way. For God, righteousness is not an external standard that he must adhere to. Righteousness is part of his very nature. It emanates from his inner being. It is impossible for God to do anything wrong. God is righteous and he always does right things. That's why sin... Is described this way in first John chapter five. First John five says sin is this. All what? Say this word out loud. Unrighteousness. All unrighteousness is what? Say it out loud. The word unrighteous is a a word that means that, an act, or a a deed that violates the standard of right conduct or righteousness. So unrighteousness is you and I acting apart from who God is because God is righteous. Anytime we step across God's boundaries, anytime we disobey God's word, we are walking in unrighteousness and all unrighteousness is sin, sin. Pastor, if you're telling me that God is righteous, and I've done all this unrighteous stuff, how can I ever be right with God? Here's the life application. The only way I can ever be right with God is to be perfectly righteous. You say, uh, uh, that's not good news. The only way I can ever be right with God. Pastor, I, think you, I don't think you wrote that just right. I, I, that's not what you meant to say, right? No, Jesus said, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. The only way I can ever be right with God is to be perfectly righteous. And, Pastor, I don't have a shot. <laughs> but remember God is awesome and God is good. And God is so awesome and so good that He has made a way for you and I to be perfectly righteous. How? I'm glad you asked. Let me show it to you. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. He, God the Father, made Him, God the Son, Jesus. He made Him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf. Here's what that means. On the cross... Jesus, God, came into the world, took on human flesh. God poured out sin on Jesus. All that sin is, all the punishment of sin. The scripture says it so boldly that he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf. Christ became the the penalty of sin. He became sin for us. Although he had no sin of his own, he took all of your sin and all of my sin on himself and on the cross Jesus died for our sin why did he do that look what it says so that we might become what oh this is good news the righteousness of who God in him Jesus died but he didn't stay dead He rose again from the dead as a testimony that God had accepted his sacrifice for our sins. And when you and I put our faith and trust in Jesus, there's a great exchange that takes place. All of my sin is paid for in him. And guess what? I get restored to me. I get that this is important. The righteousness of who? Mm. Why is that important? Because he didn't say the righteousness of Adam. Adam. He didn't even say, the righteousness I had before I sinned. No, why? Because the righteousness of Adam's not enough. What he gives us is the very righteousness of God. Here's what that means. Because of Jesus, God now looks at me as righteous. Some people say God looks at us just as if we've never sinned. No, that's not what it means. Because that's Adam's best righteousness. God looks at us as righteous as God himself. What is that? Perfect righteousness. How do I get in on that? Through Jesus, through his grace, through receiving him into my life. I don't earn it. I don't deserve it. It's all a gift of his grace. That's just how good and how awesome our God is. So he's awesome. He's good. He's righteous. So if that's who he is, how do we respond? I'm going to give you a few statements just real quickly. How do we respond to who he is out of these verses? Well, first of all, I should fear God. I should fear God. And this is not a word that means to be afraid, terrified. That's not what this word means. It's wrapped up in this idea of his awesomeness. The verb of awesomeness means to fear, to respect, to give reverence, Martin Luther helped us really understand what this word means when Martin Luther made the distinction between servile fear and filial fear. You say, what's the difference? Servile fear is a dreadful anxiety in which someone is frightened by clear and present danger. It's the idea of someone who is imprisoned and they're being tortured and it's the fear they have of the one who is torturing them. Servile fear. That's not the biblical concept of fearing God. Filial fear is the fear that a child has of his father or his mother. It's a tremendous respect and love for his or her father or mother that produces a genuine desire to please them. Because God is awesome, I should have a reverential fear of God, which should produce in my heart a desire to please him. That's why the writer of Proverbs said, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom wisdom is walking in the fear of God why because I have a reverential fear of God that produces a desire to please him and to honor him with my life and here's what the Bible says that's some wise living right there that's some wise living I should fear God here's a question are there any decisions or actions or reactions in my daily life that are not driven by a genuine love and respect for God that creates a desire to please him Is that where I'm living? Here's the second one. I should with my lips and my life make known the awesomeness of God. You see the two words here, speak and tell, in verse 6. Verse 6 says, speak of the power of your awesome acts and tell of your greatness. Speak means to use words. To speak, to tell means to make something known. He's describing here that you and I, with the way that we live and what what we say, what comes out of our mouths, we should constantly be making known the fact that our God is awesome. Here's the third one. I should live looking for opportunities to declare the goodness of God. Look at verse 7. They shall eagerly utter the memory of your abundant goodness. That In Hebrew, that, that, that phrase eagerly utter means to gush out. It means to bubble over with. And he's describing here when you and I have been so impacted by the goodness of God, stories of the goodness of God should just bubble out of our lives. One of them should be the gospel, right? If you've gotten in on this great exchange that you've been given righteousness in exchange for your sin by the grace of God, we should be bubbling over to tell people about the goodness of God and salvation. Then here's the last one. I should sing joyfully to God our team is going to move into place to help me with this one as we bring this to a close but the psalmist here says I will shout joyfully it's a word in Hebrew that means to shout for joy to sing joyfully to cry loudly why when we come together every weekend do we have a part of our service where we stand and we sing and people say, oh, you know, I'm not a good singer. I can't carry a tune. And no, no, it's not about being a good singer. It's about God being awesome. It's about God being good. It's about God being righteous. So we stand on our feet and we loudly sing praises to God. Why? Because he's worthy. He's worthy. So that's how we're going to close today. We're going to stand in just a moment and sing. A song to him. Before we do, let me pray for us. God, I pray in this moment that as only you can, you would speak. Lord, would you open our eyes that we might receive wonderful things from your word today. As you sit this morning here, we're just about to stand and practice what we've preached. We're going to stand and sing this song of worship. But if you're here today and you've never experienced the goodness of God in salvation, you've never been given His righteousness, today you stand in your own righteousness, and that's a righteousness that is failing, fallen and, and, and failed to live up to the standard of God's perfect righteousness, and the only way you and I could ever be right with God is His perfect righteousness, but He offers you that today as a gift of His grace. If you don't know Jesus today, if you've never experienced the forgiveness of God, when we stand in just a moment to sing this song of worship, I'm going to invite you to slip out from where you're going to be standing. We have some pastors here at the front. You can come to one of our pastors today, and all you need to say is this, I need Jesus. And we'll have somebody sit down with you and open a Bible and show you how you can begin a relationship with God today, how you can receive the righteousness of God. Just come. That's all you got to do is just come. For others of you, maybe you're carrying something heavy today. Maybe it's something in your job, your health, your family. Maybe you just want to come to one of these altars and just be alone with God and just pray. Or maybe you'd like to pray with one of our pastors. That's why we're here. You can come to any one of our pastors. We'd be honored to pray for you and with you today. You just come. You come. Fathers, we stand to sing this song. Lord, may it be an anthem of praise lifted to you. God, I pray for those that don't know Jesus. I pray for those that need to come today to pray, to just be alone with you. God, would you speak, would you move in this moment? It's in the name of Jesus we pray.